The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm you just, there. I'm, you there. I'm swabbing as fast as I can swab. Yes, the scraggly yes. looking one. That's me, Scraggles. Fetch me some orange peels for me scurvy. <laughs> oh, God, that's where you're going. Okay. Uh, yeah, I got I got a pocket full of orange peels right here. Yo, I carry them for good luck. Oh, yo, the oh, scurvy God, life for me. I can't tell if it's scurvy or maybe gonorrhea. Yep. Heart is yo-ho It's probably gonorrhea But I'm kind of in denial Yup, heart is yo-ho Yo-ho, yo-ho <laughs> An STD for you Ah, <laughs> oh, Jim Lad I, I told you my name is Scraggles But sure Jim Lad, come here Jim Lad I'm going to teach you something About pirate radio <laughs> oh, yes, uh, I I would love to hear about that, but I'm busy swabbing. Is there any way I can, you know, put this off? Play, we're going to play the zombies. No zombies on the mainland. Is that like the Alanis Morissette song? I would like that. Is that, that Alanis Morissette? Or is that, it's the Cranberries, isn't it? Jim lad, you simple, simple f- <laughs> It's really hard. <laughs> Jim lad, I'm going to forego the zombies because you don't know them, and I'm going to play, take a request. What would you like me to play for the folks on the mainland? Vast jihad is yo ho. Yo ho. Oh, um, sorry, I thought we were still singing. An orange uh, peel for my scurvy. I can you put on my favorite radio broadcast, perhaps? Oh, Jim lad, the air conditioning's been on this whole time. 
Uh, welcome to the Third Men Podcast. I am your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. And I am your first mate, James Kaminsky. <laughs> and uh, we are a Jack White history podcast where we talk about Jack White uh, music and movies and um, tangential pirates. acts and pirates. And, well, James, I, we began with that lovely, hilarious, gut-busting pirate skit. Yeah. Because we are talking about... Bust a gut. Yeah. One of the most notorious radio pirates that ever sailed the seven sea. Well, I, I I think he just sailed the one sea. But to ever sail the sea. And that would be James. Do you know who that is, James? Do you know who we're talking about this week? Can I just call it the FCC? It's <laughs> very funny, James. I like that. <laughs> uh, I do know who you're talking about, Paul. We're going to talk about John Peel. Ah, John Peel and the notorious Peel Sessions with the White Stripes and all connections therein to Jack White. And there are, James, there are quite a few here. And John Peel, as we'll find out, is really, aside from being a radio pirate, uh, he's really a man after Jack's own heart. And there was a lot of really cool stuff I learned about him. And I'm stoked to talk about it this week, James. I'm stoked too, Paul. The eye patch you're wearing is a little disconcerting, but that's uh, for me, pink eye. I touched my bum and then put it in the face. Touched my poop dick, popped it on me eye. Yeah, yeah. I am pretty unsanitary. Uh, so, James, this topic was actually suggested by a listener. Would you like to tell the fine uh, audience who that listener was? I'd love to, Paul. Thank you. Anthony Bain for suggesting this topic. You had tweeted at us about John Peel, and we're delivering. So, yes. I hope you like pirates. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anthony Bain or at ADB3000 on Twitter. Thank you so much. This is actually the first time, James, we've ever taken a request for a topic from a listener. However, if you, the listener out there, have a topic in mind that you'd like us to do, hey, man or woman, let's do it. I, you know, I'm game. James, what do you say? I mean, I am as game as I can be right now, Paul. I am all amped up. James, you're very gamey, and we're very amped up. But before we get to all of that, James... Is there something we should be smelling, Paul? Oh, James, I can smell it like the scurvy on me (laughs) pee-pee. Whoa. Oh. This is the most astounding fact. The most astounding fact. The most astounding fact is the knowledge. James, would you like to tell the good people what I think a smell of fact is? Well, it's not what you just said before, thank God. I think a smell of fact is when we learn something about a previous topic or had a question in a previous episode and we find an answer or somebody gives us a little more information on that topic or a little more information on that question and uh, and we relay it back into the podcast. Instead of doing a whole new episode, we just put it right out here for you. Yeah, we just put it right out here for you. And uh, this one comes courtesy of Dylan Ryan or at Dylan Ryan Wild on Twitter. And this is in response, James, to our episode 33, The Big Three. Dylan Ryan says on Twitter, Hey, I heard you guys in a recent episode talk about hidden tracks under the label of the Lazaretto vinyl. And how you didn't want to tear off the label to listen to them. You can just put the needle over the paper and they'll play still. One is like a baby talking and the other is Jack covering Pusher Man by Curtis Mayfield, which is wild. 
love some weed, some coke, some weed, smoking weed. I love some weed. I'm no pusher man. You want some coke or weed? Some methamphetamine, horse, pit, crank, shit. I'm no pusher man. And I think we actually we had covered this a little bit before. This was a stop breaking down that we did with Jeremy Riles had originally sent this to us. In addition to Jeremy Riles pointing out that you don't have to rip the stickers off to play these, Dylan Ryan points out what is played on either side. Yeah, I know the Sea of Cowards has mile markers on it, and uh, I know I had listened to that and went, what is this garbled garbage? Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> Because my record player Uh, was not good. So yes, it's good to know the tracks. Yeah, and we'd like to thank Dylan Ryan for that extra info, or at Dylan Ryan Wild on Twitter, and... When I reflect on that fact. James, you ready to get into this topic here? Yeah, let's get into this topic, Paul. Let's peel away these layers and get into this topic. Like an onion in an ogre. So, James, we're going to start off this topic here by going through a little bit of John Peel's history, if that's okay with you. That's okay with me, pal. <laughs> yeah. John Peel was actually born John Robert Parker Ravenscroft. What? Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, it's a very, it almost sounds like a Dungeons and Dragons name or something out of a... I feel like that's an X-Men villain's name. He was born on August 30th, 1939 in Heswall, England, near Liverpool, And so he was actually born less than a year before Ringo Starr and a little more than a year after John Lennon from around the same area. So that gives you an idea of who his sort of generation was, his contemporaries. He's sort of in that baby boomer, beetle beetle generation, but sort of on the slightly older side of it. Also, Ravencroft, I was right. It is a Marvel thing. It is a U.S. government building in New York in the Marvel Universe for the criminally insane. Good to know, James. Thank you very much. Yes, so anyway, it's uh, near Liverpool, and Peel grew up in a village called Burton. His father was a well-to-do cotton merchant, and Peel was sent away to get a fancy education at a place called the Shrewsbury School. He was described as the headmaster there at the Shrewsbury School as both extraordinarily eccentric and amazingly perceptive. Uh, Yeah, it's like Buster in uh, Arrested Development at that school. You have to be seen, not seen, nor hurt <laughs> exactly as you could tell already a young peel is starting to sound an awful lot like a young jack white to be mm-hmm. honest and uh he kept mostly to himself in school and got into record collecting at an early age uh, this blossomed into a desire to host his own radio show where he could play music that quote he wanted others to hear hmm. after his time at the Shrewsbury School, he also served uh, for a time in the Royal Artillery in the 1950s. Hmm. He must have been pretty damn young, though. Probably like the t- very tail end of the 50s, and he must have been, what, 18, 19, 20, something like that? Yeah, I mean, that's prime time for soldiers, for yeah. shooting people. It's prime shooting time. But James, from there, he actually moved to America for quite a while. Uh, he moved to Dallas at age 21 to work in the family trade of cotton production because his dad had 
cotton connections over there. Wow. So he goes to Dallas in the early 60s. And if you're thinking, hmm, I wonder if that foreshadows tangential involvement in anything, you're correct. It does. I'll get to that in a moment. Oh, my God. See it in your eyes. He uh, worked for an insurance company in Dallas where he met none other than candidate JFK and Lyndon Johnson as they were on the campaign trail in Dallas. When your name appears in print, uh, one of the most frequently used adjectives is youthful. Uh, Do you think that uh, this can be a political liability in case you were to run for president sometime in the future? Well, I'm I'm sure that whatever asset or liability it is, it will be uh, dealt with in time. So it's never (laughs) disturbed me very much. And later... This is true. This is the most fascinating thing I learned about this guy. of, Of many fascinating things. Very nearly a rag and bone, to be honest. He... Also, later in 1963, snuck into the arraignment of Lee Harvey Oswald, disguised as a Liverpool Echo reporter. Whoa. Yes. He then actually relayed that story to the Liverpool Echo, essentially faking it until he made it. (laughs) So because he had this Liverpudlian sort of accent, and because he was in Dallas when Kennedy was murdered... He was able to sort of con his way into the thing and was there for the arraignment of Lee Harvey Oswald. Whoa. Isn't that nuts? That is crazy. I thought you were going to say, like, he was in the book house, the stack house, or whatever it was, the book (laughs) depository. The book book suppository. The book suppository, yes. Uh, So, anyway, he's in Dallas. He's a young man. He's pretending to be involved in media, but around this time, his relationship to radio broadcasting really starts to take hold, and it was while he was in Dallas that he started his radio career on WRRAM in Dallas, where he was unpaid, but able to use this to jump onto paid gigs later, including becoming KLIF's official Beatles correspondent hey. when Be- when Beatlemania hit the U.S. It's 83 degrees in Dallas at 11 o'clock. From the world, the nation, and the Texas News Triangle. This is KLIF Hourly News. Although you haven't seen much of Dallas, uh, the part of it you have seen, what do you like? Well, I'm pretty fine. Uh, did, you get pretty fine. The, did you get to see the presidential sign? We, um... No, we've, the only bit we've seen so far is the hotel. Uh, Ringo, uh, are you, do you have any political affiliations at all? No, he doesn't need to smoke. <laughs> what kind of girls do you prefer? My wife. I'm what dead. kind of girl do you like? Uh, John's wife. I'm sure young man, Liverpool accent, aspirations for radio. They were literally looking around going, all right, who fits this bill? They would have probably taken anyone with a Liverpool accent at that (laughs) point, but John Peel just so happened to want to do that with his life. (laughs) This brings us obviously into 1964, and he's riding that Beatle wave along with everybody else of his generation. Kicking it into high gear. (laughs) So he met his first wife here as well and married her. Her name was Shirley Ann Milburn, and she was a scant 15 years old oh when they were married. Oh, my God, Paul. <laughs> when you were saying he's a pirate. <laughs> you know, it, w- it would have struck me as more weird if we hadn't just talked about Loretta Lynn being married at, like, whatever whatever it was, 13, 13 or whatever. yeah. I'm not saying it makes it fine. 
at all. But it just was like, man, that was happening a lot at that time, you know, in the American South. This, I mean, we'll kind of get to what happens there in a little bit. Uh, this marriage is not to be long-lived. Throughout the 60s, he bounced around to a few stations from uh, KOMA in Oklahoma City to KMEN in San Bernardino, California, where he actually broadcast under the name John Ravencroft. So his very earliest broadcasts were under this Ravencroft name. And James, I would also like to point out, I got the majority of this history here from Wikipedia, but I also followed through on the links there to try and verify as much of this as I could. So just being forthright about that, obviously you can't always trust everything on Wikipedia. I tried I tried my best to check as much of this as possible, but... Okay. So that's when the name John Peel emerges, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit here. In 1967, Peel came back to the UK with his new wife and began broadcasting for Radio London, which was an offshore pirate radio station. Mm. And by pirate radio, James, do you know? Do you know what I mean by that? I Have you know ever heard that expression before. I've heard the expression. I know there's a movie of the same name. I yes. assume it's people who took control of a thing and they weren't supposed to. And they did it anyway, and they were all like, we're rock and roll, and they were all like, you can't do that, and they're all like, we're pirates, and they're all like, you can't do that, and they're like, mm, we're doing it anyway, and that's the movie, roll credits, and then uh, yeah. Nick Fury shows up and gets John Peel to <laughs> join. them all to join the Avengers. <laughs> well, James, um, you're wrong. Okay. So in England, I and I never knew this because I knew exactly what you said up until actually researching this thing. So pirate radio is simply radio that is broadcast outside of the normal radio restrictions put in place by a country's government. In this case, in England at that time, uh, you needed certain amount of oversight as to what you were broadcasting and a license in order to broadcast it. And this, in conjunction with other factors, led to what we know in this context as pirate radio, although pirate radio means a lot of different things across a lot of different countries. It was part of an attack upon a very, very conservative society. The Wedgwood Ben, the Postmaster General, has already pronounced on the pirates. They're stealing the copyright and paying no money for it. They're playing records that musicians have recorded and giving them no money for it. They're endangering the ship-to-shore radio, and there's a real risk that distress at sea might not be reported because of the inadequate fumbling handling of equipment. The pirates are a menace, and I don't believe at all that uh, the public wouldn't support action to enforce the law in the interests of all these people whom I've mentioned, quite aside from interference in other countries. Life aboard the ocean and radio waves certainly has its attractions despite postmaster generals. It was a postmaster general, Mr. Reginald Bevins, under the last Conservative government, who made the prediction that if the government didn't act against pop pirates, the coasts of Britain would soon be ringed by an armada of pop pirate ships. Well, it looks as if the pop pirates will be left alone and are making money. England had this thing called needle time restrictions. The thinking was uh, they were essentially lobbied by the major English record recording houses of the time, EMI, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The government was lobbied by them essentially to say, hey, 
if you're just going to give away all this music for free on the radio, why would anyone buy records? So the English government instated this thing called needle time restrictions, which meant you could only play music for a certain amount of time during the day. Hence, needle time. So actually, the needle touching the record, like... Right. That was the restriction. So these radio pirates said, okay, if that's the law of the land, we'll go to sea and we'll broadcast outside of English jurisdiction and we'll broadcast whatever we want. Huh. This needle time restriction and this concept of pirate radio will actually come up again in a very direct connection to Jack White a little bit later. But that's the premise we're working under here. So the station was called Radio London, and the show that John Peel hosted was called The Perfumed Garden. Wonderful Miguel, wonderful Radio London. John Peel here on his way out to Radio London to spend two weeks in his perfumed garden. John, of course, is especially famed for being one of the founder members of the first cricket team of Texas. Known to all its 12 million listeners as Big L, Radio London had its studios and transmitting equipment below decks aboard the converted minesweeper Galaxy, moored three and a half miles off Frinton on the Essex coast. Wonderful Big L. So while working here at Radio London, a Radio London secretary suggested he go by the name John Peel. I don't know why. Hmm. or how that came about. I assume he was having an intimate relationship with that secretary. <laughs> uh, but that that is where the name John Peel came from. It was suggested by the secretary of Radio London. He was sitting too too long on top of the building and at sea and was starting to get sunburnt, and he was starting to peel, and the secretary's like, <laughs> you should call yourself John Peel. And then yeah. it stuck. <laughs> and thus history was made. Now you know the rest of the story. The station emphasized blues, folk, and psychedelic rock. This is 1967. We're at the height of all of that in popular culture in terms of exposure to people. The Peel way of broadcasting was sort of the template for Mark Marin, if that makes any sense. A, like a hyper-personal type of broadcast with a strong emphasis on audience participation, where issues of the day were talked about in an open and intelligent way. So self-deprecating, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> Very, very personal stuff was often shared, and we'll get into some of that in a moment. That was the kind of show he was running. It bred a personal relationship with the audience. Yeah. Radio London actually closed down later that year, so it wasn't even a year he was there. But Peel moved his show to a column in an underground newspaper called International Times. From there, James... He moved on to legitimacy. He anchored his boat ashore at WBC. I'll join ye, Royal Navy. When Radio London closed down, the BBC was starting its own pop music station titled BBC Radio 1, of which it needed experienced radio personalities to get it off the ground. Peel was an early hire. While Peel started at Radio 1 in September of 1967, by early 68 he was hosting a solo show, and only a year later he was making national headlines for his frank hosting style, which goes back to what we were just saying about him sharing very personal details. Like the one time he told stuffy British households across the country about his STD suffering. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> so he... I mean, he was kind of a proto-Howard Stern yeah. a little in a way, too. Except there's there's literally nothing else on except Howard Stern. <laughs> Change the channel to oh. what? <laughs> 
so his show was called The Night Ride. It picked up where the Perfumed Garden show left off. The show featured interviews from people such as Mark Bolin. Oh, wow. The Birds, the Rolling Stones, and John and Yoko. But 18 months after the Night Ride began, Peel's underground leanings and shocking approach finally led the BBC to shut it down. Uh, while the show was short-lived, its format of recorded music plus live recordings turned into a hallmark of his programs for the rest of his BBC career. And we're going to touch on that a little bit later, mm-hmm. the live recordings bit. So Peel was one of the first broadcasters to actually play psychedelic and prog rock on British radio, mm-hmm. scaring the bejesus, I'm sure, out of English households across the country. <laughs> he promoted artists of a variety of different genres, including pop, reggae, indie pop, indie rock, alternative rock, punk, hardcore punk, breakcore, garage. Grindcore, death metal, British hip-hop, electronic music, jungle, and dance music over his very, very long career. Yikes. A regular part of his program was called The Peel Sessions. This is via Ken Garner's 2010 biography. The Peel Sessions usually consisted of four songs recorded by an artist live in the BBC studios, and which often provided the first major national coverage to bands that would later achieve great fame. Another popular feature of his shows was the annual Festive 50 countdown of his listeners' favorite records that year. Now, James, the Peel Sessions, and we'll get into this a little bit more, is another workaround the needle time restrictions. Ah, because it's live. as long as he wasn't playing a record, he could play as much music as he needed. So that's where that comes from. That's uh, ingenious. I'll just say it. Indeed. We'll come to that more when Jack White enters the picture. He married his second wife, Sheila, in 1974, whom he called the pig on air. Great. Uh, Rod, <laughs> Rod Stewart was at the wedding. I don't know what happened with wife number one, but I don't think it was good. Um, well, I'm not proud of knowing any of these things, Paul. In the 1970s, when punk rock hit, Peel famously butted heads with station controller Derek Chinnery over punk rock. Derek had read about punk rock in newspapers and was outraged that that such a type of music could exist before somebody pointed out to him on his staff that Peel was playing pretty much nothing but punk rock for quite some time. My word, what are these children doing? They're oying and they're oying and they won't stop oying. Oh, excuse me, Mr. James. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, I can- Mr. James, uh, we've been playing pop rock on this station for quite a little while. Oh, uh, my word. Uh, I think I'm going to go on a, on a three-hour tour to clear my head. Oh, I didn't realize <laughs> we were doing a Gilligan's Island thing. I wasn't re- originally, and now I'm slowly turning into the guy from Men in Black. Joker. Water. Punk rock. (laughs) Peel. (laughs) This has been a weird segment, Paul. I think it's getting a little tired. Let's move on. Uh, Peel was a huge fan of punk rock. He (laughs) described hearing the Ramones for the first time as what it was like hearing Little Richard for the first time. Yeah, he really, really took to punk rock. He was a great discoverer, James. He had a rep for breaking new bands, uh, which led to mountains of solicitations from people sending him stuff all around the world. There's a funny story where the representation for artist Billy Bragg showed up at Peel's office after hearing Peel say on air that he was hungry. So they showed up with lunch, and in exchange, that wound up launching Billy Bragg's career. (laughs) 
Whoa. Because Peel was talking about it on the air. Uh, Billy Bragg we've talked about before because he got into a kerfuffle with Pokey Lafarge. Ah. Over what Americana music actually is. Well, his career started from a sandwich, so I think it's safe to say Pokey was right. <laughs> Not to brag or anything. Uh, so the Festival 50, we talked about that a little bit. That was his best of or countdown show. This is via the John Peel Wiki, of which there is one, of which I heavily used in researching this topic. The White Stripes had a total of eight festival 50 entries over the years Hmm. three songs came from white blood cells and two from elephant and two of the tracks from blood cells charted again when re-released as singles Uh, and so please keep in mind that uh, these were the two albums that were popular at the time of peel's life a total of eight entered dandelion radio festival 50 in 2007 with the track icky thump so that was the thing that sort of took it over Hmm. So, the tracks that were picked on the Festival 50. James, do you want to guess? Uh, fell in love with a girl. On there. Nailed it. 2001 Festival 50, number six. Uh, Hotel Yorba. Nailed it. 2001 Festival 50, number two. Um, Sorry, fell in love with a girl again. 2002 Festival 50, number 27. Uh, Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground. Nailed it. 2001 Festival 50, number 25. And again, 2002 Festival 50, number 15. Seven Nation Army, obviously. Nailed it. 2003, Festival 50, number 10. There's one that's kind of surprising, and then Icky Thump, which I already mentioned. I'll see if you can guess the surprising one, because I would have never thought of this. Uh, Is it off of Get Behind Me, Satan? No. Is it Little Acorns? No, but it may as well be. Black Math. Oh! 2003, Festival 50, number 17. Yeah, just beat out Cold Cold Night. (laughs) (laughs) It's weird, though, right? It's like a non-single album track. That is bizarre. Although, Black Math, very good song. I enjoy it. I know you you have your thing. (laughs) Well, James, you convinced me otherwise during our Would You Fight For My Love segment, which was episode 15, for those of you who want to go back and listen. Right. James put up a lovely defense for that song. So, Peel did, we'll just touch on a couple of the other media things that he did over the years. His career didn't stop at the BBC. He had shows on air throughout his career in the Netherlands, Finland, Germany, Austria, and elsewhere, earning him the title of, quote, top DJ in Europe. Peel was an occasional presenter on the popular English TV show, Top of the Pops. Apparently, he used to tell me that it was such a mess. He, he had one of those admonishments that along the lines of, you'll never work in TV again. <laughs> Michael Hurl invited John Peel back. This is from John Peel's diary. I was introduced to them and left to say amusing things, which I was quite clearly incapable of doing. This rattled me. Howdy, partners, and welcome to Top of the Pops. This is my first Top of the Pops in 14 years, but it's consistency that counts, so you can watch for me again in 1996. And in case you're thinking to yourselves, who is that twerp? I'm the bloke who comes on the radio late at night, plays your records by lots of sulky Belgians. These people are not Belgian. Theatre of hate. And he was also seen as a performer miming mandolin alongside Rod Stewart as he played his hit song, Maggie May. Was that at their wedding? Was that the time they did it? And everyone's like, he, he's doing it. He's, he's really doing it. Uh, not unless this wedding was broadcast on top of the pops, but this guy was so embedded in that culture, who knows? He dabbled in voiceover acting for the BBC and had a variety of shows, and he also owned a record label or two, one called Dandelion Records, and later a label called Strange Fruit Records, which released his various Peel Sessions recordings. Hmm. So he found a way to make those sessions pay, James. Yeah. So is that where the original BBC Sessions 
comes from? Oh, Paul won't tell. Uh, but, but he probably. will. Yeah. But no. James, what a lovely transition. That brings us to when John Peel got to know a Jack White. <gasps> This is via the John Peel fan wiki. Peel became aware of the White Stripes sound in 2000, following an early LP purchase. Quote from Peel, I first heard the White Stripes when we went to an event in Groningen in the Netherlands called Noorderslag and Eurosonic. Nailed it. Thank you. There's a wonderful record shop. Very small. Not much bigger than this studio. It's just a great record shop. And I went in there, and the first White Stripes LP was in there as an import from the States. And I just liked the look of it, and I looked at the titles. You develop an instinct. Do you know what I mean? And it looked like the sort of record I would like. So I took it out, and I did like it, and started playing it. So that's how he first became aware. It's just a random record purchase. Weird. Peel and the band obviously share a mutual admiration. On John Peel's record box, Jack White said of him... John Peel's the most important DJ of all time, I think. He always wants to uncover the underdog. He's doing the DJ's job, finding the little cracks in the cement around the world. Uh, We'll talk about that record box thing a little bit later, because that's a whole other Jack White-related business. Second only to Um, DJ Tanner. It's a full house joke, Paul. John Peel regarded the White Stripes as revivalists of a sound he was old enough to remember from the era of Jimi Hendrix and the Stooges. Quote Peel... That sort of proper, over-the-top guitar playing has always been something I've enjoyed very much. It was just good to hear that kind of sound again. 2001 was an extraordinary time. The thing is, it wasn't hype. The NME has an obligation to find a new sensation every week because that's what sells. But I think people were relieved at the simplicity and the directness of the White Stripes and the fact that they were making a noise they could identify with. So I think that's a pretty good summation of Jack White's popularity right there. Yeah. I think what John loved about the White Stripes was the fact that they were utterly, utterly primal in every way. He performs like he's possessed Jack White. He really does. And, you know, the, the way that his influences reach so far back into and in, 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 to so many familiar and, and, and well-loved places, the same sort of places that, that, that John adores as well. If you put all these vinyl records together, the blues records, you know, the obscure blues records, the strange soul records, the political rock records, the novelty records, the punk records, you know, coming out of weird areas of Britain with handwritten notes, you know, you kind of get the White Stripes. You know, that's, the, that's what it boils down to. Who would have played a White Stripes record in radio in the UK before John did? Not many. In fact, it's a list of one. John. Uh, Jack and Meg were invited by Peel to record a Peel session on the Stripes' first UK visit in July of 2001. This is via Mojo Magazine. Quote Jack, It was mind-boggling to us, because we thought the only people who liked us were a few hundred people in America, he said. (laughs) Quote, When he started playing our songs, referring to Peel, we were like, That's unbelievable! (laughs) Jack says, When we walked into the studio, I saw him in the hallway crying. He tells Mojo's Pat Gilbert, it was because his football team had just won. I thought, (laughs) this guy's amazing. (laughs) Jack is a noted sports lover, so I guess that makes sense that he would find that amazing. I find it, frankly, kind of terrifying. (laughs) I'm glad glad they they found some kind of kindred bond. Via the John Peel wiki, the first White Stripe session was three sets of three songs. Mm. 
Live from Maida Vale 4, which went out on the 25th of July, 2001, the day before they appeared at the 100 Club. And there's been more interest, I think, in tonight's entertainment than uh, within Radio 1 than in anything else that we've done that I can remember, and we're obviously very pleased about that. And uh, we hope that you're going to enjoy the rest of the programme and uh, the contribution of tonight's live band. I'm very impressed with the with the red trousers there, Jack, very similar to the ones that I wore for the uh, Liverpool-Real Madrid final in Paris all those years ago. Uh, from the studio audience now, thunderous and well-deserved applause for the White Stripes. <laughs> Usually for a live set and at popular request, repeated on October 9th, 2001. Hmm. Before the set, the band went with Peel to a Thai restaurant and talked about the blues and John Peel seeing Gene Vincent in concert. Sheila relates that one of three encounters requested by Anita Kamoff was a cover of Vincent's Baby Blues. So we'll, we'll play a little bit of Baby Blues here. Well, anybody who ends their set with a Gene Vincent song wins the unstinting approval of this programme, that's for sure. Megan Jack, The White Stripes, thanks very much. People will go away from here and their lives will never be quite the same again. It's been a magnificent night. Thanks very much indeed. And if you get the chance to go and see The White Stripes over the next few weeks, you'd be mad not to go, to be honest. This is from Sheila. John just welled up. You couldn't have pried the smile from his face with a crowbar. Aww. Peel and Jack immediately bonded over their shared love for Gene Vincent, Captain Beefheart, and old blues records. And the White Stripes were invited to record another session at Peel's home in Suffolk just four months later. Having us in his home showed us just how much he loved music, said Jack. Right, well, uh, obviously the room is now full. When I started the programme, completely empty here on my own. But now it's absolutely packed because we've got uh, here at Peel Acres, the White Stripes. <laughs> Good Lord, send me an angel down. Can't you spare no angel? You whisper your teasing brown. But this new way of loving, well, I swear to God, it must be best. Cause these Detroit women won't let Mr. Jack White rest. White also revealed that as a parting gift at Peel Acres, as it was known, the DJ gave Jack a copy of the Sex Pistols' uber rare "God Save the Queen" on A and M. Learned a lot from him. He's so on top of the game. No matter how long he'd been doing it, he really knew everything that was happening at the time, all the bands that were playing and what they were doing, what records they had done that he thought were interesting. Their thirst for for wanting to know more about music in the past, as it were, and. Um, 
And he, he thought that was quite wonderful, their broad-mindedness. There was a controversy with the Stripes around the time of Elephant. Uh, on January 29th, 2003, Peel announced that though the new White Stripes LP would not be due out till April, he would play three tracks from it that night and possibly three more the next and following Tuesday. Quote, and just carry on like that, possibly forever, end quote. <laughs> he duly broadcasts six over two nights. However, when Tuesday arrived, he said, quote, I promised that I was going to play you more tracks from the new LP by the White Stripes, having played five or six at the end of last week. Now, it's an interesting thing, because when bands first start out, both they and their record labels are usually quite keen that you play their stuff on the radio. But then there comes a point, I'm not blaming the bands for this, the record labels really, and their universal marketing plans, and this kind of thing. What they want you to do is not play the record, at least not until they say it's all right to play the record. And someone gave me a copy of the new White Stripes record last week, and I thought, the record exists, therefore I play it, <laughs> which seems to me to make perfect sense. But it seems not, so we can't play you any more tracks from it. Although they did say that we could play two of the tracks that we've already played. Now, this is what we doctors call bollocks. So instead, <laughs> I'm going to play you some other things. James, wow. does that remind you of anything? It does, Paul. It reminds me a lot of when Icky Thump was leaked mm -hmm. in uh, 2007 on that radio station with uh, DJ yeah. Electra, I think her name was. And Jack gave an angry phone call about yeah. that. I think he would have probably made an exception for Peel, uh, although it is clear by, I think, Peel's statement here that the record label did not make such an exception, which would have been Virgin at that time, or XL. Well, that is interesting. I mean, it shows just how popular the band had gotten. I feel like that's the point in the Saved by the Bell episode where Zach had already put up his hair and, and was touring solo. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, that, that's going to bring us to John Peel's death. Uh, Peel died on October 25th, 2004, at the age of 65 from a heart attack in Peru. Wow. That is a very short life. A young, young man. Throughout his lifetime, he wound up being the longest-serving original BBC One radio DJ, broadcasting regularly from 1967 to 2004, a 37-year career. Wow. Lyrics from his favorite song, Teenage Kicks by The Undertones, are written on his tombstone, which we will actually talk a little bit more about when we hit our third man segment for this week, James, Ooh. because time is a flat circle. After Peel's death, the contents of the wooden box that contained Peel's most favorite music was opened. What's in the box? <laughs> this is what I was referring to earlier as that special um, where Jack was quoted a bunch of times. Mm. And Jack was quoted rightfully so, because out of 130 vinyl singles in that box, 11 of them were by the White Stripes, more than any other band in the box. Wow. But one act dominates the box with almost 20 records. It's this duo who perhaps best symbolized John's all-embracing passion for music. There's many. Oops, there's another one hiding there. White stripes. Oh, lots of white stripes. White stripes. There's the white stripes again. Oh, he's got a lot of our records in here. Good lord. 
This whole section here has about 20 of our records in it, which is more than I have in my uh, 45 box. It's like uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant is opened and it's all white stripes in there. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty good. Like, it's cool that they made such an impression on him that they were by far the most represented. Yeah. Um, which is pretty special, I think. This is via the John Peel wiki. Uh, there, there are actually also a number of records somehow related to the band, but those by the White Stripes were as follows. Lafayette Blues, Sugar Never Tasted So Good on Italy Records. Mm. Party of Special Things to Do, China Pig, Ashtray Heart, for, uh, the sub-pop release. Mm-hmm. Merry Christmas from the White Stripes, Candy Cane Children, the reading of the story of the Magi, and the singing of Silent Night from XL. Mm-hmm. It Takes Two Baby, backed with Fell in Love with a Girl, from Sympathy for the Record Industry. Hmm. I'd never even heard of that one. A Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground, uh, backed with Stop Breaking Down on XL. Hotel Yorba, live at the Hotel Yorba, backed with Rated X on XL. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, Hotel Yorba was the highest charting uh, entry into that countdown show that he did that found its way into the record box. So out of all the records he's talked about and had listeners talk about over the years, Hotel Yorba was the most popular representation in that box of that chart. Wow. Lord Send Me an Angel, backed with your pretty good looking, the trendy American remix from the Sympathy for the Record Industry release. Mm Mm-hmm. He had two copies of that. Hmm. Hello Operator, backed with Jolene, Sympathy for the Record Industry release in 2000. Big Three Killed My Baby, backed with Red Bowling Ball Ruth, Sympathy for the Record Industry. He had two copies of that. The White Stripes, backed with the Dirt Bombs, Handsprings, and Cedar Point 76 from Extra Ball Records. Wow. White Stripes, Rocket 455, and the Blowtops EP, featuring Candy Cane Children and Santa Ain't Coming for Christmas and Sidewalk Santa from Flying Bomb Records. Yeah, that's the, the Flying Bomb Christmas record, yeah. We talk about that in episode 12. And the following had a close White Stripes connection. The Greenhorns, Shadow of Grief, uh, backed with Stayed Up Last Night on their Italy Records release, featuring Jack White. Wow, nice. Did not know Jack actually was featured on a Greenhorns record. That's news to me. (laughs) It's me too. I honestly didn't either. (laughs) We'll do a Greenhorns episode soon, I'm sure, but I think we just smelled that fact. The Soledad Brothers, Sugar and Spice, backed with Johnny's Death Letter from Italy Records with Jack White. Nice. The Upholsterers, Making of High Grade Sweets. Backed with I Ain't Superstitious, backed with Pain. He had the original Upholsters album? Sympathy for the Record Industry release from 2000. Okay. Damn. Featuring Jack White. Henchman, Some Other Guy, backed with Psycho Daisies, the Italy Records release from 1997, featuring Jack White. This one blew my mind. Two Star Tabernacle, featuring Andre Williams, Lily White Mama, and Jet Black Daddy, backed with Ramblin' Man from Bloodshot Records back in 1998. Yeah, that Cover is... Cover photo by Jack White. That is very hard to find, and it's very cool. I something else uh and the last one james is wild bunch danger high voltage backed with 
neuro cameraman and she's guatemala from flying bomb records with jack white on backing vocals in 2001 yeah i'd heard that one too uh the danger high voltage one at least it is crazy that is a Um, lot of jack white in there and a pretty awesome little collection going you know yeah Yeah, i guess maybe we did connect with john i mean he's got so many of our records in here It's very, it's a big compliment to have even one. I really wanted to become better friends with him because I really liked talking to him. When Peel died, Jack flew in from America to attend the funeral. And in 2014, Jack called Peel the most important DJ who has ever lived. These guys were real pals. And I think it uh, it stung, especially having Peel taken from mm-hmm. us at uh, such an early age. Which brings us, James, to our final uh, bit of topic here, the Peel Sessions LP. As we discussed, the Peel sessions were longtime feature of John Peel's radio programs, which typically consisted of four pieces of pre-recorded music at the BBC studios. Over 4,000 sessions were recorded by over 2,000 artists over Peel's tenure. Hmm. Via the Peel fan wiki, two sessions, both released on the complete John Peel sessions, these sessions were widely bootlegged in the years following their recording and broadcasting. One such later release from 2014 was called The 2001 John Peel Show, but even though that these were heavily bootlegged, there was an official release, James, last year on April 16th, 2016, in conjunction with Record Store Day. Yeah, I remember being first really happy because I was like, oh, I don't have that record. Then I was like, oh, wait, I have the bootleg of that record. But then I was like, oh, wait, we'll have better quality version of that record. Yeah, it does sound a whole lot better. This is from the official Third Man press release about that album that came out. At both our Nashville and Detroit locations, as well as a record store near you, we present the first ever official release of the White Stripes Peel Sessions on two stuffed-to-the-brim discs, one red, one white. Capturing Jack and Meg at the precipice of international renown in the hubbub of white blood cells, their two live sessions with famed BBC DJ John Peel are arguably the best document of the White Stripes at that time. Having been widely bootlegged since their original broadcast in 2001, these recordings are enjoying their first authorized release in celebration of their 15th anniversary. The standard black vinyl version of this release will be available later in the year. So this is interesting. There were two sessions released on the Peel Sessions LP that came out, and those are the White Stripe Sessions that we talked about. In addition to this, there's actually a third Peel Session that Jack White did solo, an evening session with Peel in 2004. And the track listing on this is really, really cool. He does Who's to Say, Jack the Ripper, Never Far Away, and that's from the Cold Mountain soundtrack. And he also does a solo rendition of Van Leer Rose on his own. I'll play this song by Loretta Lynn uh, that she taught me recently. Um, that's called Van Leer Rose. One of my fondest memories was sitting on my daddy's knee Listening to the story that he told Like a treasured memory from the past And say, child, this is the family rose 
that last Jack session with John Peel in 2004, to my knowledge, is still yet to be released. This is via the John Peel fan wiki. It describes what's on them. Hmm. Uh, so the first of the official shows here was July 25th, 2001, live at Maida Vale, and that was repeated again on October 9th, like we said earlier. Track listing, Let's Shake Hands, When I Hear My Name, Jolene, Death Letter, Cannon, Astro, Jack the Ripper, Hotel Yorba, Finding It Harder to Be a Gentleman, Screwdriver, We're Gonna Be Friends, You're Pretty Good Looking, Bull Weevil, Hello Operator, and Baby Blue, as we mentioned. Mm-hmm. The second from Peel Acres, recorded on November 8th, 2001, track listing, Lord Send Me an Angel, Dead Leaves in the Dirty Ground, I Think I Smell a Rat, Going Back to Memphis, Little Room, The Union Forever, Same Boy You've Always Known, Look Me Over Closely, Looking at You, St. James Infirmary Blues, Apple Blossom, Do, Rated X, Little Girl That Says. Wow, yeah. A lot of great tracks on this. I had a good time getting reacquainted with this album in doing this show. Yeah, I think I'd only listened to the official release only once, so it's it's making me want to go back and, and listen, especially because I, I want to hear the going back to Memphis again, because that's one of the only official releases of him singing that. I'll just end with this from theaudiophileman.com. Let's Shake Hands is an ideal example of where the band was in style terms and shows Jack White in almost psychological torment, mentally ripped to pieces as he yearns for physical contact. It's quite a shocking vocal, which I agree with. God only knows what Peel's neighbors made of it, (laughs) but the distress and anguish doesn't end there. When I hear my name almost overwhelms the band in terms of emotion and sheer aggression. Fancy hearing the stripes self-combust like a spinal tap drummer? Check out this track. Even the band's covers are worthy of attention. Their approach to Jolene, the Dolly Parton hit, is a blues rock miscreation that is twisted and mutated. And so it goes. From one brilliant live cut to another, sound quality is superb for a live session in someone's front room. Now you can dump those boots, eh? (laughs) Just of note here, uh, the record split publishing across a couple different things. The LP artwork was done by Nathaniel Strampopoulos, and Nathaniel also did album artwork for tons of Third Man releases, including Vault releases, the Lazaretto LP, Midwest Farmer's Daughter from Margot Price, and the American Epic releases, plus many, many more. Hmm. Photography and liner notes for the release was by John Baker, whom listeners will remember from our interview with Bruce Brand, who talked about how Baker, a.k.a. Mr. Pastry, That's... was the White Stripes tour manager That's at the time. right, Mr. Pastry. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Bruce, for elaborating yeah. uh, on that. Yeah, if you'd like to hear that, uh, check out episode 37, our interview with Bruce Brand. It was mastered by WG. This guy does a lot of work for Bob Dylan's back catalog, as well as uh, over 650 credits from groups such as the Black Keys, Tool, and Tom York. And it came with a download card, which is kind of hard to find these days in Jack White releases. Um, yeah. I mean, I wish he would do that more, but what are you going to do? And it was released, it looks like, in arrangement with BBC Music, so they there was some participation there. Mm-hmm. And that, James, brings us to the end of John Peel and the White Stripes. That, Paul, was excellent. And it uh, was a long voyage to get to this point. We're going to go ahead and kick it to our third man for this week. Welcome to our third man for this week, Colin White. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. It's good to be here. How's uh, it going, Colin? It's very, very warm here 
uh, up in Liverpool at the moment. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful day. It's been a beautiful weekend. You know, the summer has really, really kicked in now. And uh, obviously, judging by what you guys were saying before, we're all very, very warm today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I just got uh, off a plane from Las Vegas, Nevada, where it's currently 112 degrees. <laughs> oh, man. My, my brother's been there seven times. He knows Vegas very well. I'm sure he does, and I'm sure he remembers parts of it. So that's good. <laughs> and, and you being in Liverpool, 112 Celsius probably sounds like uh, we are cooked alive on the face of the sun. <laughs> oh, 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 believe me, believe me, there have been some really hot days here, man. Yes, indeed. So, uh, Colin, you play with Joe Symes and the Loving Kind, and we'll get into that a little bit more, but boy, I love this music. I was really digging it. It's got an awesome beat group feel to it. It's really up-tempo, and I mean, it's bouncy in places, but there's a bite to it, so I love the music. How did you get started in music in Liverpool? Oh, well, f- f- thanks for the compliments. I've been playing drums now for, hmm, it's coming up to exactly 19 years now. Um, I, I started when I was 14. I actually wanted to play when I was 11 years old, but it took from the age of 11 to 14 to convince my parents that I was serious. <laughs> Every time it was, can, I get, can you buy me a drum kit? No. Did the year later, can you buy me a drum kit? <laughs> no. You know, because they, they thought I'd probably have, you know, like most parents, they probably think, oh, we'll buy them a guitar or drums or whatever, and they'll have a go, and after about three months, it'll just end up in the corner or in someone's wardrobe or closet in a bedroom and just and to be never used again and to be neglected. But basically... Um, it was when I was 11 years old, that's when I really started to get into music. Obviously, you know, I loved the Beatles, but also the, the, the main musician for me who wanted me, who got me into playing drums was John Densmore from The Doors. Um, I used to watch oh, videos yeah, yes. and look at, the, look at him and say, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. <laughs> so uh, when I was 14, they kind of, you know, relented and went, okay, we'll give it a go. So they bought me, I remember the kit very well. It was a, a Red Pearl Export kit. Uh, I don't have it anymore. I traded it in for Ludwig kits, which I still have, which is my pride yeah. and joy. And obviously, you know, as within a year, I, I joined the bands. Uh, we, we were only doing covers and it didn't last long, but then I joined other bands over the years and up until the band I'm in now, which we've been going for about three years. Obviously, as time went by, my, my parents kind of went, Ah, he's actually getting really, really good at this. I, I think he's serious. <laughs> I think he's proved us wrong. Colin, you have proved us wrong, sir. You have proved us wrong. And I went, I told you so. And I'm still here. I'm still yeah. playing. And I, you know, the whole, you know, there'll be many more years to come. And uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm still learning more every day. And I'm very, very proud. Wow. Who are your uh, drumming icons? Obviously, you mentioned the Doors, but uh, are there any other drum? I mean, did you look to Ringo? Did you, where, where else did you look? Uh, well, yeah, Ringo was def- definitely there because I've always thought that Ringo Starr was a very, very, very underrated drummer. People actually don't realize yeah. how good he actually was and how he, he played to serve the songs, which I think every drummer should play to serve the song. Yes. Like most people who, who like the music that I like, I love the obvious ones, which is Ringo and John Densmore and Bonham and Keith Moon, Ian Pace from Deep mm. Purple. Actually, um, some of my con- I, I like a lot of jazz drummers as well. People like um, Elvin Jones and Art Blakey and Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa. But obviously, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on the show. This is actually a, a, a fact that one of my, well, two of my favorite contemporary drummers at this moment is most likely Daru Jones. Yeah, yeah. That guy's a powerhouse, and I've always thought. I, I remember the first time 
I saw him play. I think it was on the TV. I think when Jack played Glastonbury in nineteen, sorry, in two thousand and fourteen, uh, doing his last album, uh-huh. and obviously he was rocking out, and the band was great and everything. But all of a sudden, I, I looked and I kept looking over there to this guy, this crazy guy who's obviously wearing a cap like I'm wearing a cap, and he's sitting, yeah. standing up, and he's going crazy, he's standing up, bashing at the kit. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, who's that guy? And I never, I never <laughs> felt that way ever since when I was eleven years old when I saw. John Densmore play I, I had that feeling again like that oh my god there's somebody out there who I'm going to look up to again and you know and I, awesome. I haven't looked back and you know Daru is one hell of a drummer and also uh, his other one uh, Carla Azar I, I, I think she's a wonderful <laughs> player she obviously I've, yeah. I checked her band out recently too it also looks and they're pretty cool them two and Abe Laboreal Jr who plays with Paul McCartney I think they're my yeah they're my, they're my top three contemporary drummers at the moment they're just powerhouses they're wonderful players and I take a lot from them and I love to meet them one day Abe and Daru are very similar to me because they both look like they're showboating a little bit but they're not they're just so passionate about what they're doing that they're just playing to to make the song as give it as much power and energy as you can give it well, they're not, they're not afraid to show their conviction. They wear their conviction on yes. their sleeves, their belief and their passion, and they're in the moment. I mean, I, I like to think I'm, I'm like that myself because I've taken a lot of influence from them, in contemporary influence, should I say. But, you know, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think, you know, if, if, you, know, it's, if you go and see a band and every single member of the band is just standing there like a statue just sitting there playing it's boring you know you think you think you know do you do you guys and girls do do you mean what you do you know you're on that stage you're not, you're not showing me that you're enjoying it you know get off the stage go be a plumber or go and yeah. be something else don't you know i want to see you enjoy it because if you're enjoying it then the audience will enjoy it a hell of a lot more part of the appeal of jack white too is you, you can always tell with him that he's enjoying it or if he's not enjoying it he's at least having an emotional response to it he's fighting with it if he's not enjoying it um uh, what, one last thing about abe if anyone out there has not seen abe laboreal jr play with paul mccartney he's been playing with him longer than the beatles ever did and he's been playing with him longer than wings was even together abe is a gigantic creature okay, okay. And he's, he's a, a big big, big dude. dude and, and he's, he's got, got the, the highest, highest falsetto, falsetto you ever you heard in your in life, life. And, and so, so M- McCartney, McCartney can't, can't hit those notes no more. And, and so, so Abe's up there doing that. Like he's up there real high. And so he's just this big tower of a dude hitting all these wonderful high notes. That was just a slight tangent on Abe Laboreal Jr. because I rarely get an opportunity to talk about Abe. <laughs> he's, he's a brilliant player. He, he's wonderful. And obviously, like, like, like Abe, I do backing vocals too. So it's actually great to see a great yeah. drummer doing these wonderful harmonies, whether it be quite low harmonies or really high harmonies like, like Abe himself. So it, it's always, again, like you said, if, any, if, if anyone hasn't seen him, go and see Paul McCartney. Go because he is, he is a powerhouse just like Daru. I just assumed he lives in Paul McCartney's house. <laughs> maybe, he does. Just, maybe he does that's just what he, he does. does you mentioned you, you're singing harmonies let's talk a little bit about how Joe Sines and the Loving Kind got together because we talked a little bit about your musical trajectory when did you wind up with Joe I mean obviously you've been playing for a while before that band got together but. yeah uh, me and Joe uh, we started the band I've known Joe's a very very good friend of mine we've been friends for forever but obviously during our previous musical stuff I, I was doing one thing he was doing his thing and you know we always we 
were like, oh, yeah, would it be great to, you know, work together one day and do something? Maybe that time will happen. Who knows? But it, it got to a point where the band I was in kind of folded and what he was doing in his old band, he folded that because he wasn't happy. So for a short time, he was just going out there doing solo acoustic gigs. And he, uh, we kind of bumped into each other one day. We hadn't seen each other for a few months. So we were kind of, you know, what are you up to? And he said, oh, I'm doing this. And I went, oh, great, fantastic. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well... The thing I'm doing is not really. It's it's kind of stagnating. It's I'm not happy with, with what's and it's going to fold and it did fold, and then after a while I was kind of you know I worked with a few other people and I wasn't really happy for a brief time and I was kind of like look I'm just, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave this you know if there's ever a time when if you need me to maybe like maybe come in the studio and play some drums or maybe live play you know maybe some percussion or something because we didn't have a full band and he, he kind of went oh yeah absolutely fantastic and as soon as I put the phone down I know I did but I think he sort of thought right this is it now this is it <laughs> and we, we were playing for a few months just together and then I said well why don't we just get or the PRs, let's get a proper band together. Because obviously we would just go, I was just accompanying Joe and he was just under his own name and we've done a, you know, a lot of like magazine and interviews and radio sessions all around the world to America and, and everything, even at that time. And he said, well, I don't want to go out there under like the something or a, a band, just a band name because people will have to go, well, you know that guy who done that, that's that's his new band. So I thought, well, why don't we just expand on it? Because we are a band, we, we are, you know, Joe's the main songwriter, but we all work very democratic and we all have a say. So he said, well, I said, well, why don't we, why don't we do something like, you know, like Martha and the Vandellas or uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers or something and we'll call ourselves Joe Symes and something, something. And he went, think of something. And the first thing I thought of, I thought, well, Joe Symes, I think I, I, I might have had this name in my head ages ago, The Loving Kind. And I was like, oh, Joe, Joe Symes and The Loving Kind. And he kind of, we were at a gig and he kind of took a sip of a, a, a bottle, uh, a beer, and kind of, <laughs> kind, of, kind, of, kind of looked away and kind of went, yeah okay that'll do that I like that and the, the, week, the weekend passed and it still sounded great so we went we'll go with that and we got members in we were a five piece but now we're our three piece band and that actually works really really well so there's me and Joe and Andy the bass player they're knocking at the door you're talking in your sleep they're the kind that I don't want to meet we're living a lie You tell me not to worry And everything will keep Things are piling up, I'm in the deep Dog lazy, stop telling me lies Walk And as a, as a trio, I've secretly always wanted to be in a, in a, a power trio, three-piece band, yeah. and it works absolutely fantastic, and I'll never look back. It's the band I've always wanted to be in. Wow. That's awesome. That's really cool. I, I see uh, in some of the videos online, too, it looks like Joe's playing a, an old Lennon Rickenbacker, and so it looks like there's some Beatle influence outside of yourself in in, uh, in Joe's stuff, too. Oh, sure, yeah, definitely. Me, you know, um, me, me and Joe are really hardcore Beatles fans, not because we're from Liverpool, but because we just love the music anyway our yeah. bass player Andy's not he's not really I think he's more of a and he prefers 
like other bands from that time and he's a big Guns N' Roses fan but he appreciates them but he prefers other bands but he brings his own thing to the table because if we were all into the same things it'd be a bit boring so I mean the stuff that I like that maybe say Joe's not really into and the stuff that Joe's into that he probably likes more than me and the stuff that maybe like Andy likes that I do and, and so on but when it all comes together when you all put it in the mixing pot it just comes out as this wonderful thing that we're all very very happy with this and please forgive me if this is uh, a fanish have you ever played the cavern yeah yeah um yes the, ca- the, the, the cavern the cavern in liverpool at the moment i've got to say is not the original cavern the original cavern no, I know. was knocked yeah, down in 1973 uh, it's now yeah. it, it was rebuilt in about 1984 and it's a little bit further down on the corner there is a photo yeah. where the original entrance was for people to go because obviously right. you know you go down Matthew Street where the Cavern Club is and every single day there's tourists from America Canada Europe Japan you you name yeah. it everyone's New there Jersey. Jersey. yeah yeah <laughs> we were some of those tourists we, yeah. we went there uh, with the understanding we're big big Beatle fans uh, we grew up with the Beatles uh, oh you know, even though it's not the original it's still got the vibe you know yeah sure of- yeah the only time we actually play the cavern is we play we play it kind of twice a year for a festival called the International Pop Overthrow Festival which is run by a guy who's from LA and he runs it with his, his, his wife or his girlfriend and obviously when you're there you, you meet all these bands from all over the world there's like about 140 bands playing all up from all over the world on this particular eight day period in May so we played there twice uh, about three or four weeks ago. But over the past couple of years, we've played it. You know, we've had people coming up to, coming up to us saying, hi, guys, I, I've come all the way from Seattle to see you. And we were like, wow, really? <laughs> wow, and like this guy going, hello, I've come all the way from Cologne in Germany to see you. And oh, hi, I've come all the way from Austria or Sweden to see you. And we were like, oh, okay, great. Well, we know we've got a fan base around the world. So it's actually nice to, uh, to meet these people because we love sure. meeting people from all around the world. You know, we, we, we take pride that we're very cosmopolitan. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, a- as you mentioned, you guys have gained notoriety in a number of different places and uh, not only here in the States, but elsewhere and through a variety of different things. I was very interested to find out how did the thing with Noel Gallagher, uh, you guys, you guys played an after show party that he threw? We played it twice. We played the after show party for his first solo tour. And that was actually our second uh-huh. gig as a full band. We played the, uh, yeah, the O2 yeah. Academy, the main stage. The, it's about... I think it's so called 1200 cool. capacity and we headlined that and obviously the guy who was organised it was a guy from London and then when he was doing the second album uh, last year he played Liverpool again and the promoter said well do you want to do it again and we went uh, yeah <laughs> of course naturally we're not going to say no so we so we turned up we played it and the second one was even better because the first time we played it we were as a five piece band and it, it was brilliant it was fantastic it was really good but now that we've kind of shrunk down to an even better three-piece setup. One of the first gigs, I think it was like about half a dozen gigs in from being a three-piece band, we played this and it was just as good, if not better, than the last time. And considering it had been such a long time, well, it had been a couple of years between it, it felt like it was only the week before that we played the first one. So, but no doubt that, you know, obviously other things on that, of that ilk 
will be coming up again soon because you know we've just come off a tour and we're getting demand for the band at the moment is, is, is very very good the demand for us to go to America is absolutely ridiculous and I keep saying to people people we'll come to America just get someone to fund our tour <laughs> we'll be there tomorrow <laughs> we'll be there tomorrow and we'll be there for you know we'd probably stay for six months you know, and say, could you yeah, stay for longer? Yeah. No, you've got to go now. You've, you've been here six months. You've, you've, you've played, played to death. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about how you guys got together, the group. And I'm just going to circle back here. When did you first listen to Jack White? And at what point did you realize that that was a musical act that could carry a similar weight to those of your favorite groups from the 60s and the 70s and, and beyond? It's quite a funny story, actually. I kind of came to the whole Jack White universe only in the past few years. I remember the first time I heard anything by the White Stripes was, I think, about 2000, 2001, when I think they became very successful with their white blood cells when, you know, Fell in Love With A Girl came out and we were going to be friends and those songs. And I've got yeah. to admit, in 2001, 2002, a lot of people... I knew who was in the band at the time and other people who liked music were like, oh, this band's really, really good. And I've got to admit, at the time, I didn't dislike them, but at the time, I think my mind was elsewhere and I didn't really, it didn't connect with me. One of the reasons why it didn't connect, because I think I, I think I was a little bit of a snob back in those days. Uh, I've, eased, yeah. I've eased up a little. I was 17, 18 years old. I was in my own head going, what? This band doesn't have a bass player. This is this is sacrilege. How, how dare you not have a bass player? This is this is stupid. This is ridiculous. I refuse to listen to this. And for many, many years, I was in, I was kind of elsewhere. And then, like, the raconteurs turned up and I thought, well, okay, he's kind of in a full band now. But it, I wasn't really paying attention. I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't really paying attention then. I remember the Dead Weather came out and went, oh, you can play drums, that's interesting. I might, I might go back to that and look at that later, but it was actually a very, very dear friend of mine who lives over in America. She was kind of like, look, Colin, listen to this, you'll like this, you'll like this. And it was kind of some of his solo stuff and other bits and bobs and stuff. And after a while, I was kind of like, oh, this is... A I thought this is okay, you know. What I mean? <laughs> and it was actually uh, the Glastonbury performance that solidified that. Yeah. I watched it and I thought that was a good show. And I thought, you know what? That was a good show. I'm going to go out and buy your album. And I bought it. I enjoyed it. And then I basically worked backwards from there. Sure. And, I, and obviously, you know, I, I took back a lot of what I said over the years and said, you know what? You know, that, these are pretty good. You know, these are kind of, you know, got this edge to it and it's quite quirky in places. And, you know, they put on, you know, he, he puts on a good show no matter what lineup he's wearing. And I, I, I really like the rack on stairs. I thought, I thought they're absolutely fantastic. I'm actually hoping, I'm actually praying that they might say, let's do a third album because I, I think they've got a third <laughs> album in them. And obviously the Dead Weather, yeah. I thought was the one of the most interesting things because obviously this was Jack the drummer and to see him play I thought well he's a damn good drummer as well as you know the other people he's played with Patrick from the Raconteurs he's a great player and to, but to see him play I thought wow he's really really good so obviously I respect him as a, as a drummer also as well as a guitar player yeah it, it kind of just worked backwards from there so, and, I, and I haven't looked back and I'm actually grateful that I actually appreciated it now because I think if I'd have liked it then it would have been the wrong time so I always say everything happens for a reason and if someone yeah. always says to me why did you maybe get into it a little bit later I always kind of say well you know it is better to learn wisdom late than to never learn it at all his drumming was interesting to us because we learned later on that was his roots were was drumming yeah. in general so it's uh 
it's super cool to see him actually drumming in a band now. I've always been fascinated and wondering how he would play on a kit, and then seeing him in the Dead Weather for the first time, I was like, this is what I expected. You know, he's going nuts, but he's in the background going nuts. <laughs> I watched all their performances on YouTube. I think when they pl- they played Glastonbury in 2009 or 10, I think it was, when he was promoting their second album. And to see him play, I, 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 I immediately was attracted to his kit setup because he has that unusual flat, yeah, very flat, big, very ba- yeah. very shallow tom, and, and he has three, four toms there. And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting setup. And I, I always loved uh, the video that he made. It was a couple of years ago. He's playing drums. Yeah. He's playing this alternative beat from uh, the second track from the first album. And I thought, I thought, mm-hmm. right. I kind of like switched it off, landed the drum kit, and I'm like, I'm going to learn that beat. Didn't, 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 did that. That's a great, that's a really good beat. It's really a great exercise, for, yeah. you know, for your footwork on the bass drum pedal. And I learned it, and I thought, thank you. <laughs> So you being in the UK, I mean, you mentioned hearing about him first, 2000, 2001 era. We just had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Bruce Brand of the Masonics on a recent show. And Bruce highlighted for us that they really became household names in the UK around that time, particularly because they were so heavily touring the UK in that particular frame of time. And it seems that his popularity over the years is always net higher in the UK. So... A part of what we're talking about today on the, on the episode proper is John Peel and the Peel sessions and, and his influence on music culture in Britain. Do you have any memories of how the White Stripes were originally sort of promoted in the UK? And do you have any memories of maybe how John Peel might have interacted in that? Well, John Peel was, he, he kind of had this knack of kind of finding bands from all over the world, just at that point where they needed to be found and exposed to a wide audience. I'd be here forever mentioning the amount of bands he'd done that for. But I th- yeah. I th- don't quote me on this, but I do think he did probably play a big, big part. He was like, well, get on this new band from, from America. They're called the White Stripes. They're kind of unusual. There's only two of them. And they kind of got this brother-sister gimmick going off. And they got their own thing yeah. happening. They, they got this kind of garage rock revival feel um, that a lot of people had at that time, and which was really um, kicking in again. And obviously, no doubt, he played a, a major major part I mean it wasn't really on his show that I first uh, heard them I actually saw it was the videos for me that I actually saw them I remember seeing uh-huh. uh, the fellow with a girl video was always on the Kerrang channel here it was always on there guaranteed about like a dozen times a day and then you know we're going to be friends <laughs> and then um, whatever else was, was on that album but I always remember seeing it I went oh god it's that, it's that Lego video again the, 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 these must be getting really popular you know what I mean <laughs> but now I love it I think it's great but I was like wow you know the, you know, I did, I did appreciate what they were doing and I thought well you know hats off to both of them they're really you know getting popular and you know what I'll do is I'll do my thing and I'll, I, might, I might come back to that a little bit later which I obviously did over over the years but yeah obviously you know John Peel would have been one of the possibly the, the catalyst in really getting big because again he was responsible for many 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 bands getting exposure yeah. for the first time on a major major scale you know I mean if you count the amount of new wave punk bands from the late 70s did he, he exposed to the UK like Echo and the Bunnymen and possibly later on the Smiths and obviously people like the Buzzcocks and people like that no doubt yeah. uh, and obviously I think his, his favourite song was uh, Teenage Kicks 
by The Undertones. Yeah. Yes, and the Raconteurs cover that song, and it sounds awesome. And I had never heard it until the Raconteurs cover. I heard that recently, and I was like, oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, they did, they did, they did a pretty good job of that. It was interesting, yeah. songs and Jack's various covers often open up a world to me. It's it's funny, he's he's become a tastemaker over here, at least for his fan base, and I have to believe for some of the general public. I wonder if he picked up anything from John Peel. Jack knows his stuff. He knows his, his, his stuff, yeah. music-related people, so obviously he's like, hey, that guy John Peel, you know, oh, look, th- thanks John, you know, thanks for the, the exposure. So you, you mentioned then um, about, you know, the Jack White covers. There was one yeah, yeah. cover that I think he'd done as a B-side, I forgot what it was called, but it was a Harry Connick Jr. cover. I actually didn't realise it was a Harry Connick Jr. song. I went, really? Oh, oh, I thought it was his song, but he does a really, really good rendition of it. I'm trying to think what what, what the hell it was called. Blue Light, Red Light, someone's there. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that is a great version, but I hope that they may, might release that on some compilation album in, in a few years' time, maybe because I always listen to it, all the singles on Spotify, but obviously because this, a lot of the singles were on the albums, I kind of skipped them and go, well, I listen to the album before I listen to them songs. I kind of skip to the B-sides and go, oh, let's see what the B-sides are like, because yeah. because for me, B-sides, sometimes you kind of find hidden gems in B-sides like yeah. whoa why didn't they put this on the album little music candy those B-sides they are. I love them I like uh, that I like that yeah <laughs> music candy in regards to John Peel and, and the White Stripes getting to know each other it makes a little bit of sense uh, John Peel finding interest in them because he he definitely had an interest in blues singers and an American early blues in fact he had Sun House on in the 70s for a pretty good set and uh, Sunhouse actually played Death Letter on the John Peel show, and later on, Jack would play it again in the actual John Peel sessions. It makes sense that John would find some kind of interest in Jack and the White Stripes. Definitely. I mean, you just said then because he he liked a lot of different styles of music, obviously, if he found an artist and knew their influences, obviously, with Sunhouse, he probably thought, right, this guy likes Sunhouse. Let's see mm-hmm. what they have to offer. Right. Like the saying goes, you are what you eat. <laughs> obviously, you know, obviously people who come to see us and obviously like what we do and then they find out what we're influenced by collectively and individually. Then they go, oh, right, okay, this is interesting. And when you kind of pick certain songs apart, they'll go, oh, wow, yeah, that is in that song. Wow, I never would have thought that. And then people like it even more so because they, 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 they kind of see things or hear things that they don't realize that they're hearing and they think well you know you know mm-hmm. you know and obviously we, we take pride in being very diverse and very sort of versatile obviously I, I think the first mm-hmm. album is a testament to that so obviously it's, it, it goes with anyone really the fact that John Peel liked a lot of different styles of music and obviously he wasn't narrowed down to playing just rock music or jazz or folk music or whatever blues music or you know he, he, he could go right across the board and when you've got 
a great person like John, God rest his soul, that could offer so many people so many different things. You were kind of always going back and saying, well, that was, what will he discover next? What's he going to pull out of the bag next? You know, I remember right. it, I mean, one of the most bizarre things I've heard on John Peel's show, and I think it was just after he passed away. It was kind of a tribute show, and he said, oh, one of the last bands he discovered was this Japanese punk metal band, and it was the most insane <laughs> thing you've ever heard. I can't remember what, what they were called. But, you know, I mean, they were good at what they'd done, but you heard them and you just think whoa dude it's kind of by surprise again. Japanese punk metal wow where's he finding this stuff <laughs> it, was, it was insane it was interesting but it was absolute madness and you know but they appealed to an audience and I'm sure people found it very very interesting I certainly found it interesting I don't know a finer place to leave this conversation than on Japanese punk metal uh, so, uh, Colin we want to thank you very much for joining us it was a pleasure talking with you where can people find Joe Symes in the Loving Kind online or in record shops? Where, where can we go? Uh, you can find Joe Symes The Loving Kind at our website, which is www.joesimesandthelovingkind.co.uk. We're also on Facebook twice. We have our official Facebook page and we have a US fan page that uh, was set up very kindly by a lot of great, wonderful people from the West Coast. And also you can find us on Twitter, Reverb Nation, SoundCloud, Fit for Talent, we're, we're everywhere. Awesome. We encourage everyone to go out and listen to this stuff. I just had such a ball getting to know the material here. The song Falling Down, when you listen to that, it, it just sounds like really solid rock and roll. I just had a ball listening to it, and it was so wonderful talking to you and getting to know you, Colin. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, man. Thanks for the compliments. It's great to be on the show. It's always a pleasure, and I'll be, uh, be sure to check out the, uh, your future podcast as well. Thank you so much, Colin. Yeah, we're going to get back to the show here. Fantastic. Take it easy, guys. And we are going to just blow through some shout-outs here. We got some people who've been talking about the show, tweeting about the show, Facebooking about the show. We got shout-outs to new listeners. I'm just going to Jump right in here. We've got Fairlin Ayers La Luznia. La Luznia. La Luznia. La Luznia. We've got Santa Espano Bondoc. We've got Travis Olson. We've got Christian Take Note. I, of what? I don't know. We have Carol C.R. We have Laura. Hutchins, Valo, we have Mary Byrne, and we have Lindsay Vallot. Or Valo. Or Valet? Anyway, aside from these new fine folks who are tweeting about us at Facebook, and we have our constant fans who are here day in, day out, talking to us, tweeting at us, Facebooking at us, retweeting, all that good stuff. We have Kate McCoy, the bones of the operation. We got Andre, Ice Cold Lie Man. We've got Eileen Corsano. We, we see, see you over there, Eileen. We got S.A. Franco. What does that mean? This, Enough, Franco. This, I want to know. This is an intervention. What does it mean? Uh, we have Jeremy Riles keeping us on the rails. Jeremy Riles, thank you. We have Callie Durga. Thank you, Callie. You are our third person in spirit and fact checker extraordinaire. Thank you to Adrian King, the punk rock queen. Thank you to Amy Hart, the heart of the operation. My oh me, we got me oh my. And also, we'd like to add a new one to this list, Paul. Oh yeah, we do. We have LOL 2.0 from Twitter. We don't know who you are, but you've been talking to us a whole bunch. 
uh, for a while now, and it's high time you got added to the list. You, you beat out Laughing Out Loud 1.0 by this much. You're the you're the newer model, and James, you, we only forgot one more there. That would be David Poe. <gasps> That'll be fun to match up. Close enough. James, if people want to get in touch with us on social media, they can go to facebook.com slash thirdmen. You can go to Twitter, tweet at us at thirdmencast. You can go to Tumblr, thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You could check out our WordPress page, thethirdmen.wordpress.com. That's where we host the show and show notes. You could send us an email, thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. You could visit our iHeartRadio page. That's Spreaker, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. And you can search us there. You can search us on YouTube where we do visualizers that are very funny and you should all watch them. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And then we're also available on platforms such as Acast, although Acast doesn't have recent episodes for some reason, which I can't really ascertain. So go figure. Hey. Maybe we should A-cast them aside. Look. Look, it's not good. It's not a good joke, but it's there. It's a joke. And you guys, you just want jokes and nothing more. Just jokes, jokes, jokes. We get nothing but requests for jokes all day. Yeah, it's what everybody wants. But, Paul, the last few minutes have been pointless. Let's get on with it. Uh, if you if you have any listener questions, we've been uh, prepping for a listener question for like 10 years now. So if, if you have any questions, feel free to send them on in. We have a bunch already. Let's get to brass tacks. But... We could always use more, and we will answer it. If you ask it, we'll answer it. We'd like to also thank Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the help of recording our theme song, We're the Third Men, and we'd also like to thank Susanna Roundtree for the intros and outros of our program. Yes, and we'd also like to thank our third man for this week, Colin White. You were lovely. Thank you for joining us on the show, Colin. Thank you, Colin. You were fantastic. James, until next week, I think I'm going to be looking for you. I'll be looking for a home on some barge out in the ocean to broadcast our podcast from. No needle time restriction for us. Yeah. See you next week. <laughs> Fix me scurvy. <laughs> or me gonorrhea. <laughs> for more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. clip not, not to belabor Abe too much more but there's a great clip in the uh, that documentary about the concert for New York where uh, Abe explains to McCartney what Jay-Z is and how Jay-Z has a name that's also Hova and McCartney's like Hova what are you talking I don't know what she's doing uh, um <laughs> Oh, they're 
Sorry. Uh, well, I guess we could do the stop breaking down. Uh, there was, it was actually, I think, a small effect. Oh. <laughs> Another smasheroo segment. Uh, <laughs> oh. LOL 2.0 just tweeted at us. I saw that. You guys are pretty cool. Oh yeah. Or maybe I'm just thinking of Raven from That's So Raven. No, uh Mystique. Is it the Waco, Texas uh, massacre? Uh that is not Dallas. He rolls up in his van. Hey, you like the Beatles? Yeah. I uh I can introduce you to some fraggles if you like. <laughs> was arrested but I was never brought to justice for stabbing somebody with a needle <laughs> I was never Al- brought to justice <laughs> allegedly yeah allegedly he was known as the great discoverer he had a rep well I may have dubbed him that he was a <laughs> A third man session. Uh, James hasn't opened the page yet, but he's getting there. Facebook.com slash. Charlie. Hey, what the f are you eating? Hey, get out of there. Get it. What is that? What the? Where did you even find this? Don't lick your chops at me. It's a cassette tape from, like, 1981. It just says, Amelia Earhart film. <laughs> yeah, it's a reel-to-reel. Charlie, I will end you. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will end you! Okay, where were we? Until then, this is John Peel reaching for his hat and heading for the foothills. Au revoir, my old brave ones.